It's probably not the done thing to give the answer to a question right at the beginning, but I'm going to risk it. In a trivial sense, I think dementia is inevitable. So given our current biology, if somebody lived to 150, we recognize that organisms and their organs decay and fail. Given our current biology, if somebody lives a normal maximum lifestyle, I think the answer is a definite no, it is not inevitable. And to get there, what I'd like to do is to start with reviewing a little bit about the history of dementia and our perceptions about failing faculties as people get older. Then to discuss some of the different diseases. There are hundreds of diseases that can cause dementia. Um, but just pick out a few of them and how our understanding has advanced. And then talk a little bit about possibilities of prevention, because although some dementias are definitely treatable, they tend to be rare, we tend not to think of them in the way that we do the commoner dementias, but there probably are windows of opportunity for prevention. Dementia actually is a horrible word. It has a lot of emotional connotations, and conceptually, it's probably now become unhelpful. It's been useful in the past, but not now. People talk about a tsunami of cases, about this is the, the big problem of the future, equal to that of global warming, and much of this, I think, is true as we have lived longer. The predictions are that, uh, well, Currently now, the costs of dementia are about the entire gross domestic product of a country the size of Turkey. And people wonder, is this new? Is it just that we're diagnosing cases? Or is there something about our modern lifestyle that means dementia has indeed become a, uh, an epidemic? But no, it, it's been around for a long time. So nearly 4,500 years ago, Ptah Hotep, who was a vizier at the... Uh, fifth dynasty, began to forget what he'd done the previous day. He was in his time quite a, a, a famous philosopher and wrote advice on young people, how they should uh, grow up, no longer be childish or adolescent. But then he himself in the evenings began to become adolescent. And there are many writings and it's become a major feature in literature. Um, Poor King Lear asking not to be mocked when he has trouble recognizing his daughter Cordelia and his loyal uh, supporter Kent. And of course, Jaquiz's uh, famous soliloquy ending with sans everything. And I'd like to come back to that phrase again later because it could not be further from the truth. And then there's the wonderful um, episode in Gulliver's Travels where he comes across the Stroobrugs. And in this community, some rarely are born with a small mark on their forehead. And that marks them out as people who are going to be immortal. And Lemuel Gulliver thinks, oh, how wonderful that uh, here is immor immortality. But unfortunately, it's immortality with aging and not eternal youth. And as the uh, Strawbriggs age, they begin to lose their senses, and they all invariably dement. Cleverly, society doesn't allow them to own, it, own anything after the age of 50, otherwise they would acquire so many resources that the rest of society would, uh, would be at a disadvantage. And is it just the human? Now, if you lose cognitive function, and you're in the wild, you're not going to last very long. But for companion animals, there's now increasing evidence and quite a big commercial market for recognizing um, senile dementia in cats and in dogs. But is this just a feature um, of age? Well, no. And Early on in the Greco-Roman period, people were beginning to distinguish a cognitive impairment associated purely with age from a number of other causes. So Hippocrates took the view that if you live to be 80, 
you would develop what he called morosis or a type of stupidity that was associated with aging. But even then, uh, Posidinius uh, developed another term, leros, to describe other causes that were unrelated to age um, that could cause cognitive impairment. The term dementia started to appear in medical literature around the 1400s and had developed quite a lot uh, by, the, um, by the 19th century. So this is um, a treatise on insanity uh, written by Esquirol. And in fact, in terms of the causes there, interestingly, quite a few would be recognized now as causes of significant cognitive impairment or dementia. So um, progress of age, we've talked about that, um, falls upon the head. So brain injury um, certainly is a cause of cognitive impairment or dementia. Syphilis is, abuse of mercury, and abuse of wine. I think we'd not recognize quite so much the moral causes um, of dementia. Um, certainly if political shocks were true, then we really may be in for quite an epidemic of new cases. Things really changed in terms of distinguishing um, dementia that might be associated with the progression of age from other causes came with Alzheimer. And I'll come back to this again in a moment because very commonly people conflate dementia with Alzheimer's disease. But this, uh, this rather nice photo from the Tubingen Ramblers Club has uh, Alzheimer on the far left um, and there's Krapelin who was his uh, strong supporter and did much to champion the, um, the eponym of Alzheimer's disease. And then there's Gaup, who is one of Nietzsche's, uh, um, Nietzsche's psychiatrists, and Nissel at the end on the right. Actually, Nissel was quite important in this because, as with so much in science, it depends on new technologies being developed. And at the time, the German dye industry was very strong, particularly with the development of... Uh, aniline dyes, and Nissel used these to stain brain tissue slices and was able to show um, the nuclei and individual neurons. And uh, Alzheimer saw a patient when he was working in Frankfurt, a um, lady called Augusta Dieter, and she developed cognitive impairment at a young age. She was only 54 when Alzheimer first met her. And those are the, um, the case reports that were subsequently unearthed by uh, colleagues at Frankfurt. She developed a number of paranoid delusions of infidelity. She had difficulty with word finding and had quite a prominent uh, difficulty with her, her memory for day-to-day -day events. Alzheimer moved from Frankfurt, um, Frankfurt to Munich but when he heard that Augusta Dieter had died, he arranged for the brain to be um, transported to his laboratory in Munich, and he applied some of the dyes that had been developed and used by Nissel. And what he showed um, was there were two key features that he could identify using the stains. On the left is a neurofibrillary tangle, um, which is within the, the, the neurons themselves. It's now known um, to be an abnormality in a protein called tau, which is critical for small microtubules in a brain cell to aggregate properly and to provide the internal cytoskeleton, which is critically important for maintaining um, network structure of cells within the brain and for transporting down um, brain uh, neuronal processes, axons and dendrites uh, to maintain metabolism. On the right is the amyloid plaque, which has come to be seen as a, almost a sine qua non of this disease, Alzheimer's, and uh, relates to a misfolded protein. Um, amyloid just refers to the way that the proteins fold and become insoluble, and there's a, a class of proteins that are like that, um, but there was a specific one with Alzheimer's disease. 
When uh, Alzheimer moved to Munich, he moved to work with Kreppelin, uh, and it was Kreppelin who really um, uh, championed the, the eponym of Alzheimer's disease for this apparent new disease. Um, it was at the time thought to be rare and uh, an early uh, onset, as indeed Augusta Dieter had early onset form of, uh, of dementia. Now I'd like to pause here because I, I said that dementia really is quite a problematic term and I'll show this slide more than once because um, it's important to recognize what people mean by dementia. It's a syndrome, it's a, a cluster of clinical features and it means that uh, somebody is sufficiently impaired that it prevents their normal day-to-day -day function and it implies that there's a number of uh, different cognitive impairments. It's not the same as Alzheimer's disease, and I, I emphasize that because um, people often conflate the two. If they do, it's a category error, thinking that a specific disease is the same as the syndrome. It's very commonly uh, mixed up when people are talking about dementia, particularly by politicians, but also by doctors, and I find myself doing it as well. So if you hear me slipping between Alzheimer's and dementia, I'm sorry about that. One just ends up doing it, but we really have to be very, very precise as to what we're talking about. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to answer the question posed uh, in, the, in the lecture. There have been a number of definitions of dementia. I put this one up which is now 40 years old. It's become um, better defined, but this, I think, has done a lot of harm and was very influential at the time. And the problem here is this term global. Now, dementia as a syndrome has had its uses in the past. So before we had the era of very successful brain imaging, somebody who was developing a cognitive impairment, it was important to understand whether this was focal, maybe just a language impairment, because that might mean there was a, a surgically amenable abnormality, like an angioma or a, a relatively benign glioma. And without imaging, you know, that, that, that was quite a big call to make to operate. If it was quite a widespread impairment, then people would assume this was a degenerative process um, and that was helpful. This term global impairment, it has echoes of Jaquiz um, sans everything. And it could not be further from the truth and I think that's very important to uh, recognize. It's important because these diseases, I'll come on to show, um, can have very selective effects and that tells us a lot about how the brain is wired, how the brain works, how the brain perceives the environment. And it's also important because it, otherwise, if one just views things as global, we do a disservice to our patients because it emphasizes what's missing, what's not working, and does not emphasize or celebrate what works. And although diseases do progress, if cancers can progress to be metastasized widely. It's not the end stage of diseases that are important. It's the 15 to 20 years during which somebody is living with a condition that's important. So I'll come back to this again. Global is horrible. It's not sans everything. And that's why dementia, I think, is somewhat a problematic syndromic term. But to come back to Alzheimer's disease, because we do um, now understand a lot more about this particular condition. Um, following the description, it was thought to be an early onset dementia. It was referred to as a pre-senile dementia. Um, conventionally, that's coming on before the age of 65. But work that took place really in the 70s, 1970s and 1980s, looking at people with what was referred to then as senile dementia, 
it was recognized that they had the same neurofibrillary tangles and senile plaques that were seen in Augusta Dita, um, Alzheimer's first, uh, first patient. What's been very helpful um, in understanding what's going on is by um, the examination of a very rare form of Alzheimer's disease, which is hereditary. Um, Alzheimer's disease often will run in families, but I'm afraid all of us um, carry the burden of what runs in our families, whether it's a predisposition to diabetes, to arthritis, to eczema or whatever. Um, we carry uh, genetic variations that make us prone to particular diseases. And that's true for Alzheimer's. Rarely, and it is rare, um, it can be inherited as an autosomal dominant, where um, the probability is that 50% of offspring of an affected parent will develop the disease. It comes on very young. Um, I have seen people in their 20s developing um, familial autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease, but it often comes on in people in their 40s, 50s, um, or 60s. I said before about so, so often advances um, in, in science and in medicine depend on techniques. Well, we had Alzheimer in the, uh, the, diet, the German dye industry as a major technical advance. Genetics has made a big difference here because it was possible to identify in these um, families um, the, the culprit gene, which is, uh, and it, there's more than one gene that's been identified, but they all are um, critically involved in the production of the amyloid protein. And I'll just go through this schematic um, demonstration of what we've now learned about this. And that is that the, the amyloid protein that gets deposited that we see in the Alzheimer brain is abnormal. It just clumps, it becomes insoluble, it shouldn't be doing what it should be. It probably is toxic, but we don't quite understand yet how it's toxic and how it leads to the other cascade of the neurofibrillary tangle, the collapse of the neuro, neuro, neural network and, and, and the loss of brain cells themselves. But there, there is a, an amyloid precursor protein molecule that's shown in, in red, and embedded in the middle there is this A-beta protein. That's the one that gets um, spliced out um, by uh, two main enzymes, the beta secretase and the gamma secretase. And what then happens is that that molecule gets released. Now, when everything's going well, it's soluble, it has a function, that's all good. But if you have a mutation, it makes it prone to be insoluble. A lot of the proteins that we have um, and that evolution has, has in a sense produced are right at the edge of their solubility. So why that should be, I don't know. But then if something mischievous happens, either because there's a mutation um, in the gene for that protein or some environmental um, process happens, it just flips and becomes insoluble. And often then there's a cascade. And if something rarely flips, of course that may be a link to age. Because if you just go on for long enough, the probability of something not quite happening increases. Um, and so these proteins are, are on the edge of their solubility. And so what happens is that we get what should be these nice um, A-beta um, molecules doing their job, but in fact, um, they become insoluble, they form uh, fibrils, they, they clump together, and then we see the, uh, the amyloid plaques that are typical of Alzheimer's disease. And there's been a lot of interest in uh, can we interfere with that cascade um, in order to treat people with Alzheimer's disease or prevent them if it's early enough. study of people with this rare form of Alzheimer's disease has also been very important in understanding the natural history and how the disease develops. Um, it's very difficult, uh, very expensive, to take a group of uh, healthy, let's say, 50-year-olds and follow them all to see if any of them develop Alzheimer's disease. That's clearly very, very difficult. But by looking at people with familial Alzheimer's disease who carry a, a disease mutation, 
obviously you're then able to follow um, the disease. It tends to come on at a very characteristic age for a given family. Um, and you can also use the siblings who don't carry a mutation as a very good control because they would have had an early life development where they would have shared the same um, environmental uh, factors as they were growing up and where they'll be sharing a lot of, the, uh, of their genome. And what one can do um, is follow such people with imaging and imaging, as I said, has become so important now in how one diagnoses and manage, manages um, these conditions that what one can do is actually follow the, the atrophy itself. So this is over just a couple of years of somebody with familial Alzheimer's disease, and you can see the ventricles in the middle there expanding as brain tissue um, is being lost. And you can see this in, an, in, a, uh, in individual people, and sometimes in that, that's, a, that's an aggregated um, series of scans that I showed you there. This slide shows uh, an individual with a particular mutation causing familial Alzheimer's disease. And the, the three scans at the bottom are all registered to an early scan. And where you see um, green or blue, it means things are shrinking. Uh, and where you see red and yellow, things are getting bigger, expanding. So the ventricles are expanding as the uh, cerebrospinal fluid is filling up the space of lost brain cells. And particularly um, here are the, the hippocampi, which are so critical to our memory processing. And see here, it's not until this stage that the individual actually fulfills the criteria for making a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Symptoms are sort of starting here but you can see the brain volume is beginning to go down well beforehand. And if you look at uh, what's happening to some of the molecular markers of Alzheimer's disease in these familial Alzheimer's disease cases, there's a very long prodrome. There's a very large international consortium now led out of the States to look at families with these mutations. And looking at a number of measures that are now available, looking at the, the A-beta molecules and looking at um, the tau that makes up those neurofibrillary tangles, looking at um, brain shrinkage and particularly looking at the volumes of the hippocampus, which is where in the common situation Alzheimer's tends, tends to start. This is an aggregate uh, of all the var various data um, it was published a few years ago now. I think the way I would interpret it is that probably there's about 15 years where things are going amiss. Um, just because somebody carries a gene doesn't mean they're diseased. It would seem counterintuitive to say that uh, a very fit, well, intelligent five-year-old who happens, unfortunately, to carry one of these genes is diseased in some way. But there are, things begin to go wrong about 10 to 20 years before it's clear that there is something amiss. And that's very, very important in terms of prevent, potential window of opportunity for pre prevention. I'll come back to that. Of course, what this... Um, depends on is that what we see in the autosomal dominant familial cases can be generalized to the more common sporadic disease that occurs in people particularly in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And that remains to be seen. But it's not all about memory and I'd, I'd like to just give a couple of examples here because I think it pulls out two very important points. One is that these degenerative diseases, when these proteins that are at the very edge of their solubility go awry, it doesn't just wipe out all the brain. It can be very selective for networks of neurons that subserve particular functions in the brain. 
And we understand a lot more now about the, the parcellation of cognitive function, about the um, fact that cognitive function is modular with particular networks fulfilling particular functions. And although we think of Alzheimer's disease as being a disorder of the memory, that's not necessarily the case. And there are many which are now viewed as atypical, but they are quite frequent. And this is an example of somebody uh, where the disease starts at the back of the brain and using that same registration process. So um, blue and green is where there's shrinkage, but you can see it's all at the back of the brain. It's all around the occipital lobe, which is where we process visual information. Um, the graph underneath uh, is just two uh, measures, one of which is looking at um, uh, vocabulary as an intelligence measure. The other um, is much more dependent on, on visual processing. And in, in this individual, this was a, a very surprising case because this was somebody who was a control in our, our studies of people with a disease who just happened to unfortunately develop this posterior form of Alzheimer's disease. But we did have serial imaging and we were able to show that the disease started at the back of the brain. And so I'm just going to show uh, one patient we'd seen, we, William Utermolen, and this is in the public domain, who was quite a well-known uh, portrait artist and did a series of self-portraits. And this is an example of, one of, of, of a, an early self-portrait. He unfortunately developed Alzheimer's disease. He um, came to our center for a clinical trial and had stopped painting. And our, our research nurse, who got to know him very well, Ron Isaacs, um, suggested that he should continue painting. And he did. And this is the series of self-portraits that he then went on to create. Um, this I found a particularly harrowing one because he did ask us at one point, well, how do you know I've got Alzheimer's disease? And we said, well, we, know we can't be sure. He said, well, how can you be sure? He said, well, the only way one can be sure is actually to look, look at the brain. And hence that hand saw on the right-hand side of his, uh, his self-portrait. And he was aware of the difficulty. He would say, I can't get the ear right here. I, I can't, I don't know how to do this. And yet the, the sort of emotional valence of this is, is enormous. And so, um, again, global sounds everything. I, I don't think so. So that comes back. Sorry to keep harking back to it. Um, that's why this term dementia is just so, um, in so many ways, dangerous. And this problem of conflating Alzheimer's disease with dementia, because there are many other causes of dementia, possible to go into all of them, but I would just like to um, go into a little bit more detail about another one, because again, it's, it's important in understanding what we mean by, by memory. So we normally think of what is referred to as episodic memory, memory for episodes in our lives, autobiographical memory. And that's where the hippocampus comes in. There are many other types of memory, the memory of how we do motor programs, riding a bike, etc. But there's also uh, a semantic memory system, um, which is our knowledge of facts, um, facts and meaning. So I use my episodic or autobiographical memory to remember that actually um, on, a, on a Tuesday, I came to um, Barnard's Inn and I gave a, gave a lecture. But I require my semantic memory to know what a lecture means. Just very briefly, a um, couple of other conditions. One, um, dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, this overlaps with Parkinson's disease. It's important because it's another protein, a protein called synuclein, that uh, again is near its solubility. And what we now realize is so many of these diseases are beginning, do overlap. And as they progress, you get a cascade of these proteins that are misfolding. To mention with Lewy bodies, um, Mervyn Peake uh, was a patient at Queen Square and somebody published, went back to look at his case notes. It wasn't clear what he had at the time, but he almost certainly had to mention with Lewy bodies. These patients, as well as developing a Parkinsonian syndrome, develop hallucinations. 
They're quite distinct from those in psychotic disease. They rarely speak. And uh, these are some of the sketches that he, the Mervyn Peak made um, of the hallucinations that he was experiencing um, with his uh, um, Lewy body disease. And the other cause, and it, it's important this, because uh, at one time, um, vascular disease, strokes, little strokes with hypertension, big strokes, was thought to be a major cause of cognitive impairment in later life. It still is, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, I've put here vascular dementia. I prefer the term vascular cognitive impairment, and it very frequently is seen in combination, particularly in the older person, with these other degenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, etc. And that's a problem. So the traditional way of approaching um, diagnosis is using Occam's razor or the principle of parsimony. If I've got 10 observations, I could come up with 10 explanations. If I've got 10 observations and I can come up with a single explanation for those 10 observations, then Bishop Ockham says that's the one you go to. Nice principle of parsimony. And that's worked very well for medicine. Um, and a number of situations, particularly with genetics, where we thought there might be two different diseases, actually can be explained by one single genetic disorder. But as you get older, life's not quite like that. John Hickam is an a American physician, and his dictum was that a patient can have as many diseases as he darn well wants. Um, and Occam's razor, the, the parsimony principle, does begin to break down as we get older, and we're having to deal, deal with a multitude of different um, disease, disease processes. And I'm just going to pause here because I want to rebalance things slightly because being forgetful has had a very bad press and I, I, I presented it, it as being bad. And as Rochefoucauld said in one of his um, maxims, everyone complains of their memory, but very, very few ever complain of their judgment. And we do complain about our memory. It's a very, very common uh, presentation at GP surgeries and particularly with all the media attention around cognitive impairment or dementia. But forgetting is important. We don't remember everything. We don't remember our infant years. We can't remember exactly what happened on July the 7th, 2013. And we can't remember all the semantic knowledge that might have come our way. Um, there was a very nice um, review just last month about the fact that forgetting has an important role um, in plasticity. We can't afford to remember everything. In um, the Penguin classics of uh, the Ar Argentinian writer Jorge Borges, there's a wonderful short story about um, Fuentes the Memorius. And the writer describes seeing, uh, seeing Fuentes when he was a young man and had the ability to know exactly what time of the day it was. And he was intrigued by that. And then he'd heard that Fuentes had been thrown from a horse and was now paralyzed, but he also had a perfect memory and he went to visit him. And Fuentes could remember everything. And sometimes to keep himself interested because he was now paralyzed. He would recall everything that had happened the previous day, but it took him the whole day to recall what had happened the previous day. And he developed a sort of naming system for every single little, I'm, I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but it gives the, the idea of every pebble on a, uh, a river shore. And then he realized that wasn't sufficient because he had to account for the passage of time because every stone that he remembered would be different from moment to moment because the context was different. And he described, Fuentes, how for him to see somebody or an object straight ahead, that was a different object 
from looking at it from the side. Now, the brain um, has this ability, a perception, to create a, a, a visual object, depending on which angle you look at it. So if we had perfect memory, how would we subtract knowledge? How would we generalize? How would we have wisdom? It would be impossible if everything were discrete autobiographical chunks of our memory. So I'm putting in a plea for forgetfulness. It, it actually is quite an important thing, but clearly what we're talking about is where it sort of just tips over into not being so good. So can we live to an old age um, and still function well? Well, the famous case of uh, Jean Calmont, who lived to 121. She uh, was in the village of Arles. She remembered Van Gogh coming and buying his paints from the, from the local store. Um, sadly, she outlived her daughter and her grandson, who actually died in a, a road traffic accident. Um, she, when she was 90, a local attorney went into a viager arrangement with her whereby she was allowed to live in her house. He paid her 2,500 French francs a month. And you can see where this is going. She outlived him. Um, the family had to keep paying the arrangement. So uh, by the time she did die, some 30 years later, she'd been paid an enormous amount of money, far more than her house was worth. In the 1990s, people did examine her. She had a CT scan, um, which was not normal, but it did not show dramatic changes that one might have anticipated. She had difficulty with hearing and with vision, but her memory was well-preserved. And there are other good examples, particularly in the arts, Picasso and Grandma Moses painting into their 90s, Rubenstein performing. And in science, Hans Kostelitz was working on discovery of the encephalins when he was in his 70s. So, yes, it is possible to remain cognitively intact well into late life. But what can, we, what can we do? How can we maintain that? Well, of course, if you want to look for what the answer is, go to the Daily Express. Um, lots of claims that there's all sorts of treatments. That all sounds wonderful. Um, I did say that some dementias are treatable. There are a number of rare diseases that, in the past were viewed as a dementia. We don't think of it now because we have this mindset that's this sort of global ca catastrophe of the brain and it's untreatable. But even simple things like hypothyroidism in infants, so-called cretinism, before it was recognized and treated, these people would grow up to adults with, with dementia. But for the degenerative diseases at the moment, for Alzheimer's, we don't have a simple cure. I mean, there's a lot of research going on, particularly looking at the amyloid uh, pathways. It's all very encouraging. But we need to be careful thinking about terms like cure. We rarely cure diseases. Yes. Orthopedics can be pretty good at it. Infectious diseases experts can be pretty good at it. But a lot of things we just learn to live with. People um, learn to live as long-term conditions, their cancers or their diabetes or whatever. And what will happen, I suspect, or I would hope so, is that we learn how to manage these abnormal protein accumulations so that they become long-term conditions that are ameliorated and one can try and maximize what function there is. But can we therefore, what, what are the options for prevention? Um, colleagues at UCL, um, undertook a review on behalf of the Lancet to look at what factors there were that might be reversible that were linked to a higher risk of dementia. And they were throughout life, and you can see here things like education. There is you know, pretty robust evidence that um, a higher education provides some sort of cognitive reserve against the onslaught of some of these diseases, and a number of, uh, of midlife ones. And what they then did is to perform estimates uh, of what the, um, what the population attributable fraction would be if you could intervene. 
they tried to account for the fact some of these might overlap to some extent um, allowed for um, and came up with uh, an indication that around about 30% as an upper bound. Right? This is if, if people absolutely could get rid of these, these factors, you might be able, you might be able to prevent dementia in up to 30% of cases. That's important. And there is some evidence um, that in the, um, in the Western world, certainly in the US uh, and in much of Europe, that actually the, the incidence rate of dementia may be going down. The prevalence, the amount that there is in the general population is still increasing because we're getting older. But the new cases per year may be coming down. That's probably due to better management of hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, of people in their, in their 40s and 50s that tended to be overlooked before. But I would finish with um, coming back to this issue of dementia. Dementia really isn't, I think, helpful. Um, it is only the tip of the iceberg. So that prevention commission, the Lancet Commission, was talking about all-cause dementia. So when we're talking about dementia, this is severe cognitive impairment. It's not global. It's only not global, but it, it, it's causing problems. I think we need to focus a lot more on cognition generally. Showing those um, data about the course of people with familial Alzheimer's disease, where we can follow their progression, there's obviously people are going to have their cognition beginning to be blunted before anybody thinks about a diagnosis. And that's a lot of those... Uh, of that submerged part of the iceberg. But there's a lot of other things. Ill health. Cognition is a bit like the canary in the coal mine. It's one of the first things that goes if we're not well. You know, if, if we've got COVID, you just, your cognition is just not good. It, it's very sensitive. And some of these are short-term effects, but they're still very important. Medication. Awful lot of medication causes problems with, uh, with cognition. Poor education, we talked about that. Pollution, good evidence that pollution is not good, both when you're an adult and when you're a child. Injury, particularly head injury, but then things like poverty, wicked problems, really difficult to solve problems, are going to impair people's cognition and stress. We need to shift away from this just discussing dementia to thinking about cognition more generally. Whatever we do will have a cognitive footprint in the same way that we think about what we do having a carbon footprint. And we've got to maximize or reduce, whichever way you want to uh, um, do the sums of the metric, to um, maximize our cognitive potential. So what about cognitive health? Well, this, this, is, this is my own particular list that's sort of culled from things I quite like and things that, um, uh, where there's good evidence. So do protect your head and don't smoke. I think they're, they're good. Diet, there is increasing, I think, evidence that diet is good. Um, the whole story of the Mediterranean diet. Wine, I think there's very good evidence that wine is helpful, although I have to recognise that nearly... All the best data come from the University of Bordeaux. Um, sleep's important because we, there's now evidence that we, we process some of these, um, get rid of some of these toxic deposited proteins when we're asleep. Meditation, relaxation, exercise, curiosity, a bit of is that cause or effect. Key thing is maintain activity, whether that's physical or mental. And so I guess keep coming to Gresham Lectures. Thank you. Um, I've got some questions. I'm, I'm going to start with some questions from online and then we'll go to the room. Um, well, you've, you've answered quite a lot of these already, um, but could I start with one about the lack of sleep? What is the effect of the lack of sleep on the onset of dementia? Okay, so um, first of all, I'll take it that it's not just about dementia. I'm looking at the camera because I think I've got to look at the camera. So if you're wondering why I'm looking into the distance, I'm looking at the camera. There's the short-term effect of lack of sleep. 
And that's really important. So coming back to that issue about maximizing cognition, if you don't sleep, you, your, your cognition goes. And if, you, if you're sleep deprived for long periods of time, the brain just goes haywire. People start hallucinating. In terms of its effect on degeneration, there's increasing evidence that we, we have a system, um, the lymphatic system it's referred to, whereby we, um, we actually move uh, some of these proteins out of the brain and sleep seems to be quite an important component of that. The other thing to mention is that some of the early brain networks that are impaired in Alzheimer's disease and some of the other degenerative dementias are also those that are involved in modulating and maintaining our sleep. I've got a question here about treatments. Do we have any evidence that any treatments can slow or even prevent dementia? Okay, so I think here it depends again what type of dementia we're talking about. So for Alzheimer's disease, there are some symptomatic treatments. Um, I, they'll help some of the symptoms. If you stop them, you sort of go back to how you were. Despite the claims, and there is one drug, aducanumab, that's been licensed in the States, hasn't been licensed in Europe, I think most people feel that the evidence is not at all good. Um, but... Uh, there are a number of other um, diseases, that, even degenerative diseases I mentioned, where treatments are available. Um, I was going to ask you about um, what you said about it, the connection with age. So if I understood correctly, um, a protein's on the solubility limit and a mutation occurs and that pushes over the solubility limit, which means that you're, you get a cascading effect, and so you develop a condition. Um, how is that related to age? Why is that okay. mutation effect related to age? Yeah, so I, so I think what you're asking there is a really interesting question, um, is why some of these diseases don't happen straight away. Um, and it's the same with something like Huntington's disease, which again... Um, rarely can come on in young children. But why some of these diseases don't come on for 20, 30, 40 years when they're genetic is just not known. I mean, I think it's an intriguing question and I don't know the answer. Um, are you able to describe what that patient would have been seeing when he was unable to locate your hand? Okay, so... Um, I said I might come back to it because... Um, and, and there may, I don't know how much sort of clinical neurology expertise there is in the room, but if you were a neurologist and you saw that person, you would assume that they had what's called hemianopia, and that actually couldn't see anything in his right visual field. But, well, we know that's not the case because he could see moving objects in the right visual field. So it's not that he'd lost the occipital, part of the occipital lobe that does any visual processing. The fact is that there were some other subtle signs. So didn't show it in that video, but often what these patients will have, they can't um, do that computation of where the object is, so they can't reach for it. But if you sometimes do slight change in hand gestures, they will actually mimic them. And um, so that, those are the reasons, but the, the main reason, and I may not have run it long enough, but when we threw the um, shuttlecock into his right visual field, he had to go backhand, he picked it up straight away. So he can see something, but he just can't see where it is, and then he can't trigger the appropriate motor program to get his hand to it. Professor Rossell, I'm going to ask one more question from online before going back to the room. Um, a lot of people ask this question. I know you mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Um, are there any additional um, gut bacteria or probiotics yeah. or anything else that helps? <laughs> I mean, th th this is suddenly such a, a hot topic. I have to say, I find difficulty keeping up with it. Um, I think the, the microbiome has been absolutely fascinating. That, um, and, and it is, all seems so obvious. You know, we, think of, we think of ourselves as being these sort of independent of everything. It's a bit like the way we um, you know, think of our brains as just being independent. But everything is so embedded in the environment. Our brains don't exist unless we are interacting all the time. 
we don't exist unless you know, we're, we're, all our organs are interacting and this wonderful environment of all these nice micro, microbes. The interaction between the brain and the, um, the body, both in terms of the microbiome, around the immunology, um, and the way that things can be affected by, sorry, I should be looking at the camera, affected by, by stress and other things is very important. I think it will become increasingly important. Um, I think the evidence is that the microbiome likes things that have been fermented. Um, so if you like sauerkraut, a lot of Japanese things, that's good. Um, and it quite likes coffee. I think that's very good. I wanted to ask you to think about the future uh, in light of the present and try and project for us uh, how cognitive impairment might suffer from failures in care for and uh, protection from two broad groups, the medical profession, the healthcare profession, and, the, and families because I think people with cognitive impairment spend much of their time with one or either one or the other or both of those broad groups. How much care and protection are they going to need in the future as more people become aff afflicted with cognitive uh, impairment? Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, it's a very important question because we, I mean, we have got a crisis of care at the moment um, not able to give the sort of support. I do think that we need to change as a society to become much more um, supportive and tolerant of people's cognitive function. Um, so I think that's going to be important. The medical profession can provide guidance. I mean, my own particular areas, because neurologists are like that, is around diagnosis and getting that bit, bit right. Um, and I think I hinted the fact that it, it, there's a danger it can be overwhelmed if, you know, as we get more and more publicity about cognition. I would just like to see us move towards thinking about maximizing cognition rather than just think about dementia per se, um, because I, think, uh, I do think that's important. Um, thank you so much, Professor Rousseau. I'm afraid I'm going to have to draw that to a close now. But um, our next medical lecture uh, is going to be on freezing eggs and delaying fertility, law, ethics and society. Ooh. It's by Professor Imogen Gould and it's next Monday, the 11th of April. So please do come along for that. Thank you so much, yeah. Professor Rousseau. Yeah.